Welcome to the Thinking Differently podcast, where we explore the new horizons of our rapidly changing world. I'm Rod Collins, your host for today's podcast. As technological innovations continue to transform the rules for how successful businesses work, we challenge business leaders to rethink how they remain competitive in a digitally transformed marketplace. Our theme for this second season has been collective intelligence. In this final episode, I want to share with you the story of how I discovered a powerful process that is today known as the Collective Intelligence Workshop. I also want to share with you some of the tools from the workshop that you can use to access what I believe is the most untapped resource in the typical organization, the collective intelligence of its own people. In the early part of my career, I served as an executive for the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program, more commonly known as FEP. FEP is an unusual business organization. It's not a vertically integrated organization. It's a business alliance. The best analogy to describe how this business worked came from an offhand comment made by a management consultant FEP had hired some years ago when he remarked that the only other organization he had worked with that was similar to FEP was the National Football League. Just as each of the teams in the NFL is a separate business organization, With its own ownership and management, each of the Blue Cross Blue Shield organizations has a separate board and management group. Whereas the NFL has a commissioner's office to provide the general management for the league, FEP has a director's office to coordinate the joint efforts of the Health Insurance Alliance. And much like the NFL, the various Blue Cross Blue Shield organizations often competed against each other. In the mid-1990s, I was asked to lead an operational turnaround of the Business Alliance. For the previous two decades, FEP had struggled with low growth and less than desirable performance. In the mid-1970s, FEP had been forced to raise premium rates by over 50%, to remain financially solvent. While this rate increase did solve the immediate financial woes, it came at a great cost as FEP rapidly lost 23 points of market share. Over the next two decades, FEP managed to gradually build up its financial reserves, but was able to regain only four points of the lost enrollment. With its financial reserves strong once again, it was time to make a bold move and put FEP back on a high growth trajectory. To accomplish this, we needed to substantially improve our operational performance and the customer experience. In contemplating this challenge, I realized that the competition among the various Blue Cross Blue Shield organizations was a nagging problem 
and a driver of our less than desirable operational performance. It was often difficult to come to agreement on operational policy and processes when the different organizations had competing interests. Our meetings tended to be endless, unresolved debates, and as a consequence, operational issues could remain open, sometimes for years. And when the director's office attempted to resolve issues by issuing top-down policy directives, many of the participants in the alliance would push back and assert their independence to act otherwise. As I reflected on how we might do things differently, I realized that if we were going to be successful, we needed to align with the reality that we were leading a network, not a hierarchy. We needed to stop issuing top-down directives and find a way for the various alliance partners to consistently and rapidly reach consensus on critical operational issues. Or, in the words of General McChrystal, as you may recall from a previous episode, we needed to stop being chess masters and learn how to become gardeners. This would not be easy because in the mid-1990s, there was no body of knowledge on how to lead organizational networks. If we were going to become gardeners, we needed to come up with a process to quickly and reliably achieve consensus among the Alliance participants. Our solution was to create an innovative large group meeting process that is today known as the Collective Intelligence Workshop. These sessions included 40 to 50 participants that represented a microcosm of our business. The participants came from all levels and all functions and brought together a wide diversity of perspectives. The sessions were designed to greatly minimize debate by using facilitated individual and group activities to integrate the best thinking from various perspectives. By using facilitative activities rather than debate as our primary vehicle for processing human information, we were able to achieve the rapid consensus we needed by gaining access to what is probably the richest and most untapped resource in the typical organization, the collective intelligence of its own people. The format of the Collective Intelligence Workshop is rather simple, but its application can be rather difficult for business leaders because in leading the conversations that happen in the workshop, the leaders need to put aside their need for control and trust whatever emerges from the collective intelligence of the group. In short, if leaders want to discover the best solution to what appear to be intractable problems, 
They must detach themselves from any particular outcome. Recall, in an earlier episode, we discussed how the three well-intentioned advocates of Colorado's Universal Healthcare Improvement Initiative were unable to commit to accepting whatever solution might emerge from a collective intelligence workshop because they were convinced they already knew the answer and thus were overly invested in a particular outcome. Unfortunately, the Colorado voters didn't agree when they soundly defeated the proposal. The need for leaders to control the conversation is often the prime obstacle to solving wicked problems, especially when the conversation is a debate. Debates rarely produce creative business solutions because they tend to be win-lose battles where the goal of the participants is to dominate the discussion and to assure their ideas prevail. However, even if successful, the battle may be won, but often the war continues on because the losers often find a way to politically sabotage the apparent victory and live on to fight another day. When we first created what is now known as the Collective Intelligence Workshop, we were completely unaware of the phenomenon of collective intelligence. The ability for these workshops to allow us access to our collective intelligence was something that emerged as we became proficient with this tool. Instead, in the beginning, we were focused on creating a no-debate meeting because given our decades-long feudal experience, we were convinced there was no such thing as a healthy debate. With this in mind, we designed a very simple format. The workshops always begin with a short, usually 20-minute presentation by a subject matter expert to provide an orientation or an overview of the complex problem that needs to be solved. There are two rules that apply to presentations that assure the group will not devolve into fruitless debate. The first rule is that all presentations are delivered without interruption. The second rule is that when presentations are completed, the participants can only ask clarifying questions for a fixed period, usually about 10 minutes. Whether the participants agree or disagree, or whether they see the subject differently is not relevant during the clarifying questions time. The goal is for everyone to listen to the thoughts and the ideas of the presenters, regardless of agreement or disagreement. The purpose of these two rules is to enable the conditions for subsequent dialogue by making sure everyone truly understands each other's thinking before engaging 
in discussion. When the presentation and the clarifying questions are complete, the leader divides the participants into groups of eight people each for the first small group exercise of the workshop. Now is the time to understand what's most important to the diversity of the participants. Accordingly, the work for this first exercise is to ask each small group to identify its top five most important observations, opinions, or concerns about the complex problem that needs to be solved. The phrasing of this task is meant to be neutral, inviting both positive and negative input regarding what's working, what's not working, or what needs to be done to reach a solution. Far too often, the people who are closest to the customer or the work processes are not directly involved in providing their thoughts and ideas before decisions are made. This exercise assures that this critical knowledge is built into the data gathering. When the groups report the top five items recorded on their flip charts, the two rules of no interruptions and clarifying questions only apply to these presentations as well. Once again, whether people agree or disagree with what's most important to each group is irrelevant. What is relevant is that everyone understands the perspectives of each of the groups. Up to this point, there has been no attempt at problem solving because formulating solutions without a shared understanding of the key issues and concerns around the problem to be solved is counterproductive. The first hours of a collective intelligence workshop are about taking the time to listen and to understand the different perspectives around an issue before attempting problem solving or agreeing on needed actions. All too often in the typical corporate meeting, the problem solving begins before the issue is sufficiently understood and actions are taken without truly knowing whether they will work or not. Too much of corporate behavior is driven by a bias for action and fueled by a misplaced sense of urgency in the face of poorly defined complexity. In a world in which the degree of business complexity and the speed of change is ever increasing, a bias for action is no virtue, as more often than not, premature problem solving and indiscriminate execution result in unnecessary work or major rework that in the end actually slows the company down and hampers its ability to respond in market time. Collective intelligent workshops have a strong bias for results and are based on a counterintuitive premise. You need to slow down to move fast.
taking the time in those first hours of a workshop to effectively process the thinking of everyone in the room before attempting problem solving assures an early shared understanding among the participants around what exactly is the problem to be solved and fosters a sense that people know what they are doing. With this understanding comes a clear focus about what are the right actions that will lead to the best solutions to the problem. In fast-changing times, there is increasing pressure to get it right the first time. And that means moving slow in the beginning in order to move fast at the end. The two rules of no interruptions and clarifying questions only are how these workshops slow down to move fast. By taking the time to listen to everyone's ideas and to focus on what is most important, we are now ready to open up the discussion and invite agreements and disagreements. Typically, at the end of the small group exercise, the flip charts with the top five items for each group are arrayed next to each other on a wall in the room. The leader asks the participants to look over the flip charts and identify items that may be identical or similar across the different small group reports. As items are identified, the participants agree on which one item is retained and which item is deleted. Oftentimes, the conversations around which items to retain or delete lead to greater understanding of the original observations from the small groups and increases everyone's knowledge of the complexities related to the project or initiative under discussion. As a result, sometimes it becomes obvious which items should be retained or deleted. Other times, it becomes clear from the discussion that the two items are actually not similar at all, but rather reflect very different aspects of the issue at hand, and therefore, both items should be retained after editing the language on the flip charts to further clarify each of the items. In all instances, the final word on whether to retain, delete, or edit an item is the prerogative of the group participants and not of the leader. The leader may make suggestions to the group and may even challenge the group's thinking, but in the end, the decisions on the composition of the list of items are to be made solely by the participants. This can be very challenging for a leader who is used to managing by control, especially if he or she has a history of editing the views of others when they differ from the leaders. In a collective intelligence workshop, the leader does not get to exercise this type of control in the development of ideas. Now, this does not mean that ultimate decision-making rests with the group. 
decision-making, as well as the commitment of resources, can remain the prerogative of the organization's executive leadership. However, in the collective intelligence workshops, the conclusions about the ideas to be presented for the executive's consideration rest with the participants. If executives have the advantage of work processes that make available to them the fastest, most comprehensive and uncensored thinking of the individuals in their organization, then they have a powerful competitive advantage in quickly identifying breakthrough solutions to complex issues. When all the items on the flip charts have been condensed into a mutually exclusive list, the leader passes out small strips of stick-on dots with anywhere from three to five dots per strip. The leader asks the participants to place their dots adjacent to the items that are most important to them. People are free to vote their dots any way they want. Thus, for example, if each strip contained four dots, an individual could place four dots on four different items, or all four dots on one item, or two dots on one item and two dots on two different items. This flexibility in applying dots assures two things. First, dots are placed only on the most important items. Second, the ability to apply more than one dot to a particular item provides the opportunity for minority points of view to remain a part of the continuing dialogue. Once all the dots have been applied to the items on the condensed list, the facilitator tallies the votes and identifies the top four or five items. Typically, these items contain an element that is key for one of the factions in the group. It usually contains an apparently contradictory element that's important to a faction with an opposing point of view. And it usually has two or three items that help to bridge the apparently opposing elements such that the set of four or five items taken as a whole is acceptable to all participants. The beauty of the workshop is that the process moves a group past endless debate over deep differences by tapping into the collective intelligence of the group to identify workable common ground to move forward. Having moved past these differences and reaching a shared understanding around the solution to a complex problem, the work for the balance of the workshop is to identify the action plan around the core elements identified in the prior exercises. What we have presented here is a sample of what happens in a collective intelligence workshop. If you would like to learn more about the workshop and other ways to use collective intelligence in your business, I refer you to my book, Wiki Management, a revolutionary new model for a rapidly changing 
and collaborative world. The Collective Intelligence Workshop is a powerful management tool because it incorporates Sorowiki's four attributes, which we discussed in earlier episodes. Diversity of opinion and local knowledge are accomplished by having representatives from all levels and all functions. Independent thinking is enabled by the small group discussions and the dot voting. And in addition, the dot voting provides us with a highly effective aggregation mechanism. This powerful tool became the prime vehicle for aligning FEP's management practice with the reality that we were leading a network and not a hierarchy. Learning how to lead a network turned our business around. Over the next several years, FEP regained all its lost market share and significantly improved both its operational performance and customer experience. If you are a business leader, I encourage you to explore how you might use this valuable tool the next time you are faced with a complex problem. I think you will find that General McChrystal is right. It's time to stop playing chess. It's time to become gardeners. Thanks for listening today. This concludes the second season of the Thinking Differently podcast. We will be taking a few weeks off as we put together the episodes for season three. We look forward to joining you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.